Well, because this Tuesday's presidential election is widely regarded to be one of the most important ones in our country's recent history, and because our topic in this series has been the kingly reign of Jesus Christ, we thought it appropriate this weekend to address the matter of how loyal subjects of King Jesus ought to rightly think about and relate to the human governmental authorities that we find ourselves living under. So, politics. Ah, yes, politics. As I was preparing, I realized that by making just a few careless statements today, I could really stir things up in this room. <laughs> but uh, you can rest assured I won't be you know, telling you how I think you ought to vote on Tuesday. I won't even be divulging who I'm going to be voting for. I think what we need to remember is that our primary identity as followers of Jesus is not Democrats, Republicans, Independents, Tea Party, whatever. First and foremost, we are members of the royal family of Jesus Christ and citizens of the kingdom of God. Amen. That's our primary identity. Because of that, we share in common the most important things in all of life. And that should overshadow any political differences that we might have. And we will have differences. But my contention is that followers of Jesus should be able to discuss and debate political issues with grace and with respect and without undercutting their deep love for their spiritual family. I hope you believe that as well. Well, as Pastor Brian mentioned, uh, in his famous work, The City of God, Augustine made the case that followers of Jesus hold a dual citizenship. And I think he was right. Through our belief in the gospel, Jesus Christ has made us privileged citizens of God's kingdom, right? A government that is not of this world, but it's also true that the, until the king returns, we live in an earthly kingdom. And so we hold citizenship here as well. So I am both a citizen of God's kingdom and of an earthly kingdom. And I think it's challenging to try and understand how these two citizenships intersect and how they affect each other. So is one more important than the other? Should I have a primary allegiance? How does our citizenship in the kingdom of God impact our earthly citizenship? These are very interesting and intriguing questions. Now, I think we need to understand something. Christianity, by its very nature, is not compartmentalized. What I mean by that is that the true biblical version of the Christian faith cannot be relegated or restricted to just one or two boxes of your life, like the religion box or the church box. Instead, true Christianity is comprehensive and pervasive and life-dominating. Jesus didn't allow for his followers to divide their lives into secular and sacred. Everything is sacred followers of Jesus, or should be, our friendships, our hobbies, our entertainment, our work life, our family life, and yes, even our politics. So in this sense, Christianity is not really just a religion, it's, it's a worldview, isn't it? And so my intention today is not so much to guide you in how you should vote on Tuesday, but to help us form a grid a worldview through which to think about our relationship to human government as followers of Jesus Christ. So to start out, let's go to the one who had the most Christian worldview of all, right? 
if anybody had a Christian worldview, it was Christ himself, and asked, did Jesus ever talk about how to relate to human government? Perhaps his most famous statement on this topic is found in a little exchange recorded in the book of Mark. So if you have a Bible, turn to Mark or click on your app and go to Mark. And let's listen in and see what we can learn here. Mark chapter 12, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 13. It says this. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anybody's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now that's a fair question. But it wasn't being asked with sincere motives, was it? This was a premeditated verbal ambush. It says it was a trap. They were trying to bait Jesus into a no-win situation. Now notice there are two groups mentioned here, the Pharisees and the Herodians. You see that? Now in normal life, these two groups would normally have not collaborated on anything. They didn't see eye to eye on much at all. At that time, the land of Judea was governed by the Roman Empire, which had set up little puppet rulers in all of the provinces that they had taken over. Judea's ruler was known as King Herod. And so the Herodians, you see that, King Herod, the Herodians were supporters of Herod and supporters of Roman rule. Pharisees, on the other hand, despised Roman rule. They despised the occupation of their land by the Romans, and they loved to spark political revolt whenever they could. But notice here that we see that despite the differences of these groups, they came together. Why? Because they both felt threatened by Jesus Christ. You know the old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And that's what was happening here. These two groups come together and collaborate on a plan to trip Jesus up by putting him in a kind of heads I win, tails you lose, no win situation. A dilemma. So what was their plan? Well, first, to approach him in public when there were lots of people around. Second, to butter him up with some flattery, tell him how great they thought he was. And third, come up with a zinger of a question that had no good answer so that no matter how Jesus responded, somebody would be upset and he would lose popularity with either Jews or Romans. So they worked hard on forming the exact right question. They met together late at night in a smoke-filled room, perhaps, <laughs> working the words, the verbiage. How could we say it just right so that we really trap him? And then, just the right moment, they spring it on him. So, Jesus, you awesome fellow, you, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Zing. It's interesting. They ask, is it lawful? Lawful. So this is a legal question, and it dealt with the emotionally charged issue of paying taxes. And everybody standing there on that day likely had a very strong opinion on that subject, just like you do in our day and just like I do. You see how they were trying to put him in a no-win situation? Now, 
Is it lawful to pay taxes? The tax referred to here was the very unpopular Roman poll tax. This was required of every adult male in the Roman Empire, and many Jews, as you might imagine, hated the Romans, and they hated their tax because it was a constant reminder that they were not free, that they lived under Roman rule. The tax was to be paid with a coin called a denarius. Denarius was the equivalent of a day's wage, and it had an image stamped on it, the, the image or the likeness of Caesar, Rome's emperor, and it had also had an inscription that read like this, Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. So if you were a Jewish person and you held a denarius in your hand and you were looking at it, it was almost as if Caesar was staring back at you, kind of sneering, your money is not your money. It belongs to me and so do you. And the Jews hated it. They resented it. So how would Jesus answer this question? If he, on the one hand, answered, yes, you ought to pay your taxes to the Romans, then all the Jews who hated Roman rule would turn on Jesus as a sympathizer of Rome. But if he answered, no, you shouldn't be forced to place your hard-earned money into Caesar's coffers, then he would be exposed as a revolutionary and be subject to the wrath of the state. So it looked like Jesus was about to be checkmated by these clever guys. Listen to his response. But, verse 15, knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus knows people's thoughts, by the way. He knows what you're thinking right now and me. Knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, it's Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, famous statement, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And it says, they marveled at him. And so should you. And so do I. Note to self, never underestimate Jesus Christ. This statement likely left his detractors kind of speechless, but it likely would have also been unsettling to some of the other people who were standing there that day and maybe unsettling to us as well. Look at it again. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, as always, Jesus was teaching here. He was forever teaching people. He was imparting a a Christian worldview. He's trying to help people to think like he thought. And here, specifically related to this idea of stewardship. So here's my first point today that I want us to consider. And it's this. Jesus called his followers to live as model citizens of both heaven and earth. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Citizens of heaven and earth. Let's talk about this notion of earthly citizenship. Give to Caesar what belongs to him. Think about what Jesus' statement conveyed in that moment. It conveyed that human government is a legitimate enterprise in God's sight. It conveyed that as a general rule, Followers of Jesus are called to be in submission to the authority of the state, and it conveyed that it is right and good to pay taxes that support the government, even an evil, oppressive 
government like the Roman Empire. You see how this could be a little unsettling? Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. You know, throughout the years, some people have sought to portray Jesus as a kind of political revolutionary who went around trying to you know, stir people up and overthrow the government. You ever heard of liberation theology? It's kind of what that's all about. But what you find in the Bible is actually quite different. You see Jesus advocating submission to the state, even an autocratic, oppressive government like the Roman Empire, a government that would shortly take his life and the lives of many thousands of his followers. Now, let's be honest and admit that this is a very thorny issue for American Christians. After all, our nation was founded on revolution, right? And we know that taxation was a key issue in that. In the current culture, individual freedom is prized so highly that it's almost reached the status of a religion. Plus, authority is often viewed with suspicion. So Jesus' words here can be unsettling not only to them, but to us. But in a Christian worldview, the general principle from his own lips is to live in submission to whatever government you find yourself living under and to willingly support it through paying taxes. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Now, if you doubt this, realize that both Paul and Peter would later reinforce Jesus' teaching in their writings. Turn to Romans chapter 13, if you will, one of the most clear and comprehensive treatments in the Bible of this matter of how Christians relate to civil government. Let me begin reading with Romans 13 and verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. That's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur, incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid." For he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. That's interesting. Attending to this very thing. So pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Sounds to me like, Jesus, like Paul embraced Jesus' worldview. Does it sound like that to you? Note the reasons that Paul gave for Christians living in submission to civil authority and paying taxes. First, he says, government authority has been ordained by God himself. Human government is a good thing, even if it's not patently Christian. It's still a good thing. Instituted really by God way back in the Garden of Eden in the creation mandate when he told his created beings, rule over the earth and subdue it. A primitive form of human government. Think about us in our setting. For us, this means that those who serve in government, and we have a number of people in our church family who work for the local authorities or for the state, if you serve in government, you're doing a good work. You're doing a good work. 
Because all human government, flawed though it may be, has been ordained by God for the common good of the people who live under its authority. Remove human government from a fallen world, and what do you have? Chaos. Anarchy. So despite the flaws inherent in every kind of government system, the Bible declares that human government has been ordained by God. Now that's not to say that every decision made by every government has God's stamp of approval. That would be faulty reasoning. But the institution itself, like the institution of marriage and the family and the church, are His idea and to be honored as such. And then Paul gave three more reasons to be in submission to the state. Verse 2, he says, resisting government authority is tantamount to resisting God himself, since he ordained government. How many of you think it's generally a good idea to resist God? No, that's not a good idea. So he says, be in submission, so you're not resisting God. In verse 4, he says, insubordination will likely lead to punishment from God through the state, And in verse 5, he says, Christians ought to submit in order to maintain a clear conscience before the Lord. So Paul believed what Jesus taught, that as a general rule now, followers of Christ ought to live under the authority of the state for their own good and their own protection. Maybe you've heard the analogy of authority in our lives being like an umbrella, a protective umbrella that we live under for our own good. Now, Peter, the Apostle Peter, also concurred with this stance. He wrote this in his letter. 1 Peter chapter 2 is where I'm going now. 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 12, it, it reads like this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse 13. Be subject... For the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor, talking about Caesar there, as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So that's the local authorities. Verse 15, for this is what? The will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. And what's the last phrase? Honor the emperor. So Peter offers some additional reasons to be in submission to civil authority. For the sake of not hindering evangelism, verse 12. Verse 15, to silence the critics of Christianity who are looking for hypocritical Christians to justify their rejection of Christ. And then verse 15 and 16, it's God's will, he says. This is God's desire that we live in submission to human authority, living as his servants. Now, notice this, and this hits us right where we live. Peter calls not only for external compliance to government authority and law, but he also calls for an internal attitude of what? Honoring. Honoring our political leaders. When he wrote, honor the emperor he was telling christian people to honor basically an evil man who was demanding to be worshiped as god they were to do this based on his position 
And so here we see the important biblical principle that Christians are called to follow Christ by giving respect and honor to their human leaders, not because of their sterling character, not because of their godly decisions, but because of the position of authority that they occupy over us. So even though respect for positional authority is out of vogue in our culture and has been for over 40 years, it's not out of vogue with God. And I can just hear the silent protests coming from the pews. But, 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 that guy stands for everything I'm against and he stands against everything I'm for. I'm supposed to be in submission to him. I thought Jesus wanted us to fight for righteousness. Well, he does. But in his word here, he tells us that respectful submission to human authority is righteousness. And you can fight for what is right in a way that is honoring and respectful. Did you know that? Now I'm going to meddle a little bit. As a pastor, I find it troubling when I hear about or observe Christian parents who are rightly requiring their children to honor them as parents, but in the next breath turn around and lambast the president and dishonor him in the presence of those same children. Your children are not stupid. In time, they will see through the inconsistency of being selectively submissive. Listen. If you can dishonor government authorities when you disagree with them, what's to keep your children from dishonoring you when they disagree with your authority? See what I'm saying? Authority delegated by God to human leaders is either real or it's not. Selective submission is not only inconsistent, it's not really biblical submission. If I only submit to the authorities I agree with and like... That's not biblical submission. That's selective submission. And I admit I'm guilty as charged on this one. The Christian worldview calls for all citizens of heaven to be good citizens on earth too. Jesus established this principle. Paul and Peter reinforced it. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And that means several things. It means that human governments of all kinds exist by divine decree and they possess delegated authority from God to be used for the common good, to protect life and property, to restrain evil in a fallen world and to reward good behavior. It means that government officials are God's servants called by God to work hard every day, carry out their functions in such a way as to bless the people who are under that government authority it means that believers are generally to live in submission and to honor their leaders for the position that they occupy and the heavy responsibility they carry. You know, just watching the presidential debates with my family, I'm, I'm thinking, who really wants that job, you know? <laughs> oh my gracious, the weight, the heaviness. Jesus' principle also means we're to support the government through paying our taxes. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar. So there's another important way Christians should do this. Let me mention this. 
1 Timothy 2, verse 1 says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing to the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So you know how else we ought to be rendering unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's? We ought to pray. Pray for our government officials. That's why we're having a prayer meeting tomorrow night. Pray that they will make decisions that will enable the people who live under their authority, and particularly Christians, to lead godly, dignified lives that will win the respect of our neighbors and cause them to want to know and follow Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be awesome if the prevailing view of Christians in our culture was that they are supportive of our government and a blessing to our city, And people who observed our lives wanted to know more about our Savior as a result. That's what ought to be happening. So let me take all this that I've stirred up and summarize it into five principles of civic responsibility or or general rules of Christian citizenship. What does it mean for us to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's? What's included in a truly Christian worldview when it comes to how we relate to our government. Well, first is the principle of submission to government authority. Submission to government authority. Generally speaking, we'll get to the exceptions in a moment, but generally speaking, Christians are to align themselves under civil authority to honor God. That's followed by the principle of an honoring attitude, an honoring, respectful attitude, which means viewing and speaking respectfully of government officials since they are ministers of God. Paul said it three times. They're ministers of God, ministers of God, occupying positions of authority. Follow that with the principle of prioritized prayer. Pray. Pray. Pray regularly. I'm guilty of not doing this enough. Pray regularly for government leaders to establish environments that are conducive to declaring and demonstrating the gospel. Fourth is the principle of godly influence. What I mean by that is is encouraging and supporting efforts to influence lawmakers to align with God's purposes of punishing evil and rewarding good. And then the principle of paying taxes, supporting the government financially by paying what is required. Now, if you disagree with me on anything that I've said so far, or you want to pick a fight with me, just send me an email My email address is brobertson at enewlife.com, okay? And you'll get a response. (laughs) Now, let's, let's ask the question, let's ask the question that all of us are probably thinking. Are there any instances, are there any situations where it's okay to resist the government? Are there any situations where Civil disobedience is what it's called, is is justified. Again, this is a complicated issue that that even many Christian scholars don't don't agree on. So I'll give you my opinion. (laughs) Affirmed by the Lord. (laughs) Maybe, I don't know. I, I think that the most solid and scriptural position is this. Civil disobedience by Christians can be justified in two cases. When the government is commanding us to do things that God commands us not to do, I believe it's justified. And conversely, 
when the government commands us not to do the things that God commands us to do. So when either of those situations come into play, then, and I think they're kind of rare in our country right now, then we can invoke the principle of Acts 5.29, which says we must obey God rather than man. So let me flesh this out. If our government here in the United States ever dictates that you can no longer talk about Jesus Christ to other people, outlaws that, evangelism, witnessing, then I believe we would be justified in continuing to speak about Jesus, just like the apostles did in Acts 5. They said, we can't help but speak what we've seen and heard. Put us in jail, you know. We will obey God rather than man. If our government ever says it is now illegal to gather and worship Jesus Christ, I believe we would be justified in resisting that mandate. If the government says you are now required to marry someone of the same sex, or that you have to abort your babies, then we should resolve because of Christ to obey God rather than man and accept whatever consequences the state levies against us. That's my position. Now, I do agree with Tim Keller and others who believe that we should be working simultaneously to get God's law respected everywhere. I really do. So that the government is not creating anti-God laws like the ones I just mentioned. Thankfully, the form of government that we enjoy living under allows us to legally seek to impact culture, to talk to our neighbors, to spread influence, to elect officials who claim that they will seek to align with God's holy law. We should all work and vote towards that end. And since I'm giving you some of my opinions, I'll give you another one. Take it for what it's worth. We should probably not be too overly optimistic about what can happen in a fallen, fallen world prior to the return of King Jesus. That's just where I'm at. Maybe you're at a different place than me. But my biggest hopes, my biggest hopes are not pinned on Democrats or Republicans or Independents or Governor Romney or President Obama. I've been through too many cycles of glorious letdown to think that any human leader is going to usher in what I'm really looking forward to. That's me. If you're in a different place, you have that email address. <laughs> Type away to your heart's content. But I do challenge you to cultivate a biblical worldview and a biblical mindset on this. Now, back to Jesus and his response to the trick question. He could have stopped there, couldn't he? Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. He could have stopped there, period, end of statement, but he did not. He said, give to the state what the state requires, yes, but also, what? Give to God what is God's. Here's one place in the Bible where we get this idea of dual citizenship, the state and God. Now, when I hear that, give to God, render unto God that which is God's, my question is, what is it? What, what is it that belongs to God that he had in mind? What is God's? that we should be giving to him, offering to him. And then this insight hit me. Remember that as Jesus was talking, he had a coin in his hand, right? A denarius. And as we saw, that coin had an image of Caesar stamped right on it. So here's a question. Is there anything in this world that has God's image stamped on it that belongs to God? What do you think? You. <laughs> me. Created in the image of God. 
stamped on your life, the image of your creator, just like that image of Caesar was stamped on that coin and belonged to Caesar, Jesus, I think, was implying, give yourself to God. Give yourself, to give your whole life to God. He made you. He created you. You're his by virtue of creation and also by virtue of redemption. He sent his son to shed his blood and die for your sins and mine so that we could be purchased and redeemed and brought into the royal family. I think Jesus was saying, give yourself to God. Pay your taxes. Yeah, absolutely. But give your whole life to God. And I'm telling you, this statement has the effect of ranking where your primary allegiance should be. Which is worthy of our highest allegiance, God or government? Which? God. Absolutely. That's why it says that when two kingdoms clash, when the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God clash, we should obey God rather than man. Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God. That's a rank statement. First, highest allegiance, deepest devotion, King Jesus. I would wish, when I see how passionate some of us are about this election and the candidates and the issues in our country, oh, how I wish you had even more passion for the reign of King Jesus in your heart and life. More passion. And I'm spitting all over the place up here, aren't I? <laughs> more. And that brings me to my second point for today. Relax, the other ones are not as long as the first one. First point, Jesus called his followers to live as model citizens. Second point, too often his followers fail to do so. I know some of you don't want to hear this, but too often it's true. I'm telling you, historically it's true. God's people have often messed this up, got confused about their responsibilities to God and to, to earthly kingdoms. It's also true of God's people today. Our calling and our actual lifestyle often don't line up with each other. I mean, isn't this true? You say, how so? Well, for starters, let me just mention a few things. How many Christians practice selective submission, lining up only under those authorities they agree with? How many Christians feel justified in dishonoring government officials, yelling at the television, right? How many Christians cheat on their taxes? How many Christians passionately advocate Western-style individualistic freedom to do whatever we want, but are totally silent on biblical submission to authority? That's, that's out of whack. That's out of alignment. How many Christians channel all their energies into loudly advocating moral reform in our country, which is good, but they clam up when it comes to talking about Jesus' sacrifice for sin? That, that's, that's out of whack. How many Christians have white-hot passion for certain political candidates but are mostly lukewarm towards Jesus Christ? That doesn't make sense, does it? And on the other end of the spectrum, how many Christians are totally apathetic and disengaged from the political process and won't even vote because they think it's useless and their efforts don't matter? That's out of whack too. How many Christians are sitting at home bemoaning the evil culture we live in, pining away for heaven, and forgetting that Jesus did call us to engage with our culture, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So let's be honest, there's still something in us, even 
us believers, even members of God's royal family, citizens of the kingdom of God, there's something in us that draws us toward rebellion, deception, autonomy, apathy, disengagement. Sometimes our position in Christ and our daily lifestyle don't line up. That's why the third point is so important. We've got to get this now. Jesus Christ came and lived out dual citizenship perfectly, and he did it on behalf of his people. He lived it out. Aren't you glad to follow a leader who lived out what he called his followers to do? I am. That's kind of rare too, isn't it? Following what Peter wrote in his letter about submitting to authority, we find this instruction to Christians like you and me. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, it says this, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? You know, you break the law, you get punished. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you a what? An example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself, I love this, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is beautiful. You see, Jesus called his people to be model citizens and to live in submission to authority, both human authority and God's authority. And yes, it's true, too often his people have failed to live that way, but Jesus didn't fail. No way. He perfectly lived out what he called us to do. And get this. Through faith in the gospel, his perfect obedience gets credited to you. Do we get that? This is the gospel truth. This is the king of kings and lord of lords coming down to this earth, clothing himself with human flesh, placing himself underneath human authority that he created. Think of him standing there with Pilate. Pilate looking at him saying, don't you realize I have authority to take your life? And Jesus saying, you would have no authority if my Father in heaven hadn't given, you, given it to you. He submitted to it, even when it was evil and unjust. When the Jewish and Roman authorities exercised their God-given authority by ordering the crucifixion of God, Jesus accepted it as part of the divine plan, did he not? This is mind-blowing. Our Savior King lived it, and he lived it for us. His humble submission to human authority has been imputed to you and to me who know, know Jesus Christ. You and I have failed to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's, but Jesus did it perfectly and his perfect obedience has been given to you and to me. And because of that, number four, by resting in his work, by resting in his accomplishment for us, we find ourselves ever more able to live like he lived. One person gets that. <laughs> this is 
obedience driven by grace, not law. Because Jesus now lives in us through His Spirit. The life that we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. It's His life that beats in our breasts. It's His life that can flow out through us so that our responses and attitudes and values are ever more like His own. So don't be disheartened and crushed by your sin and selfishness and pride and rebellion. And I won't either. Confess it, yes. Repent of it, yes. Turn from it, yes. But know this, our champion, King Jesus, has already paid for all of our sin and rebellion and insubordination. He took care of it. And He now lives within us and enables us to reign in life through submission. What a glorious paradox that is. Reign through submission. What a king we have. What a savior. What, what a lord. What a master Jesus is. What an example for all of us. Let's worship Jesus. Amen? Let's worship Jesus Christ. It's his life that flows through our veins. Well, I'll end there for today.